and welcome back to the Patriot Game. This week's special guest is none other than lifelong public activist Danny Morrison. Danny's been a member of Sinn Féin for over 50 years and has served as a director of publicity and elected member for Mid-Ulster and served time in prison and later he's an author. Danny, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Pierce and Martin, for inviting me along. Uh, no matter. So just with all of our guests, we kind of go back to the start and with today being the 100th anniversary of Partition, how is it you became involved yourself in trying to end Partition? Well, I was where I'm doing the interview from is in West Belfast, Andersonstown. I was actually uh, born here in 1953, uh, quite a long time ago, 68 years ago. And it was quite obvious to me growing up that there was something wrong with the society I was living in. But I wouldn't have become politicised, I think, until I moved down the Falls Road. Our family moved to the Broadway area, Avey, Beachmount, Mid Falls, in 1963. And at that time, believe it or not, the Orange Order still marched on the Falls Road. Uh, they came up Broadway. The, the The area was covered in red, white, and blue bunting. They marched past the Heinz's Bar and the Beehive. They stood outside what is now Coulterland. That was then Broadway Presbyterian Church. Uh, played God Save the Queen, and then they processed into the church. And uh, we were just we were just vanquished. We could do nothing about it. It was part of our lot because we were second-class citizens and uh, the unionists ruled the roost and had done so uh, beyond, before partition, incidentally. Because what your listeners need to understand is that unionists had no problem with the United Ireland as long as the Protestant ascendancy was in charge of it. And they, uh, they, they slowly resisted the extension of the franchise throughout the 19th century as the vote was extended beyond uh, property owners and, and extended to men, first of all, with property, and then to uh, men who were ratepayers. Women, of course, didn't uh, come on to the electoral registers until much later. But unions had no problem with United Ireland as long as they were in charge of it. And it was with the constitutional efforts uh, to achieve home rule by parliamentary methods, by the use of the Irish Parliamentary Party in Westminster when they held the balance of power, that unionists organised the first paramilitary uh, and fascist organisation of the 20th century, the UVF, which was illegally formed, illegally drilled, illegally imported arms from Germany and threatened civil war in Ireland if they didn't manage to keep all of Ireland uh, inside the union and denied us home rule. So when partition came about, in 1920, 1921, uh, my, grand, my maternal grandparents were driven from their home at that time. And th then they moved back into the area again in the 20s, thinking that it would be peaceful. And they were driven out for, for another time, which is how they came to settle in Andersonstown uh, in, West, in West Belfast. So when I grew up, I was quite aware that there was something wrong. Uh, if we were, as children, if we were going into, if we had to cross through, a unionist area. We had to adopt Protestant sounding names like Sammy or, or Billy. If we were going to the Cooper Street Clinic for uh, a, an injection, you had to be very, very much on your guard because you could be pulled in by some other kids and they would ask you to sing the Sash or God Save the Queen. Uh, and even later, for a while in my late teens, I was a pioneer uh, and I had to take the pioneer pin off if I was going to visit somebody in the matter hospital in case it was spotted. So you learned you learned to be 
uh, fearful and also you were quite aware of personal security from a very, very early age. The next, uh, well, I, I also remember, of course, the general election in October 1964. Sinn Féin was a, a banned organisation and so they put up a candidate in that general election, an independent Republican, Billy McMillan. His offices were in Devil Street and Ian Paisley threatened to bring thousands into West Belfast. And this was an area, of course, that had been attacked in the 30s and in the 20s and in the 1880s and in the 1890s. The same people, the same homes that were on streets that were attacked in 1969 had been attacked on earlier occasions. And Paisley said that if the tricolour, which was in the window, not flying on the street, but in the, inside the shop window, the election office window, he would lead a, a, a crowd under the Falls Road to remove it. And the, the RUC came along with uh, sledgehammers. They smashed their way in and they took the tricolour. The locals were angry, replaced it, and the police came back and smashed their way in and took it again. And ratting broke out, which lasted for six days. And so in 1964, you had a large number of people, you know, maybe up to 80 or 100 young people. And on one occasion, uh, a, a mother of eight was arrested uh, for protesting and sentenced to six months in jail. So a lot of people were, uh, as a result of that incident, ended up with prison sentences and criminal records. And interestingly, when I was doing research, I was writing an article called 145 Devil Street, which was the, the address of the office uh, of Billy Mc, uh, of the of the Independent Republican Stoke Sinn Féin candidate in 1964. And many of the people who were arrested then, their names subsequently emerge as being interned, or in the case of a 22-year-old married man, Brian Keenan, he emerges as a leading Republican, uh, subsequently Chief of Staff of the IRA, and served, I think, about 16 or 17 years in jail in England. So, I mean, at 10, 11 years of age, you, you learned very quickly uh, what was going on, that, the, that certain streets were safe and certain streets weren't unsafe. Now, you hadn't got the education or the knowledge apart from what you'd possibly pick up at the home, in your home or at the hearth uh, or among friends. My, my, There's a sort of split in my family, although I'm Morrison, which is a Scottish Presbyterian name. As, uh, someone, some generations back, uh, changed and obviously converted to Catholicism. But my, my father and my grandfather uh, my, my grandfather served in the First World War and in the Second World War, and my father joined the RAF towards the uh, end of the Second World War. Um, so my, my, the Morrison side of my family would have been pretty pro-British, I think it's safe to say. And on my mother's side, her, name, her maiden name was White, and her brother, Harry White, was a fairly famous IRA figure in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. He was the chief of staff of the IRA at one stage in the 1940s. He was sentenced to death uh, in relation to a shooting when a special branch detective was killed uh, in the south of Ireland. Although he, 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 that was later reprieved, and he was actually given an amnesty, believe it or not, by Fine Gael as the, the price of getting into government with Clan the Publica in 1948. That was Sean McBride's party. Uh, Sean McBride had been previously a, a chief of staff of the IRA, and his father, Captain John McBride, was executed in 1916 uh, for taking part in the 1916 rising. So 
growing up in the Falls Road was uh, an unbelievable political experience. Come the 50th anniversary of the 1916 Rising, uh, there was a huge march through West Belfast. Bunting was put up. But they, the government banned all public transport coming into the city to try and minimise those who would attend the Easter parade. I remember watching it. It was huge. But we paid a very heavy price for that because uh, within a few weeks, loyalists who had reorganised the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force, as a paramilitary organisation, began uh, attacking Catholics. The, they shot dead a 17-year-old man from Beachmount Parade, Peter Ward. And I later, when I was married, I ended up living next door to his widowed mother. And they also shot dead in Clonard Street, on the way up to Clonard Monastery, just off the Falls Road, a man called John Scullion. And this is the price we, we paid uh, for celebrating or commemorating the rising in 1916. In the case of John Scullion, the police said that he was stabbed, suggesting that it was a domestic incident. The family had to go to court and uh, get the body uh, uh, disinterred for an autopsy, and it, the bullets were removed from his, his body. So it was, always a, it was always an attempt by the state to cover up the excesses of its supporters. And we saw that, of course, become much more efficient during the conflict uh, with collusion, when loyalist paramilitaries were being handed uh, documents on where we lived, what type of cars we drove, if we picked kids up from school, where we socialised. Uh, so that 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 was the that was the background uh, into which I was born, realizing that we were we were second class. I became politicized, I would say, probably uh, as a result of the Vietnam War, following it, following the progress of it, seeing the marches in the United States. But I was also, of course, influenced by the Black Civil Rights Movement in North America, uh, Martin Luther King, and followed that the progress of of, of both that war. And Martin Luther King, of course, he was assassinated in 1968. Uh, I actually remember writing in my diary as a 15-year-old about him being being killed. Jeez. The, um, you were talking there about being politicised, and it's obviously well documented um, your your level of intellectuals um, understanding and your the, the way that you were able to strategise. When you were a younger man, were you focused primarily on republicanism? Or did you incorporate it with class struggle and understand that republicanism can only take you so far, but maybe going back to the thinking of Connolly, you need to be able to incorporate class struggle as well to sort of advance the cause? Well, my uncle Harry, uh, who I mentioned to you as a veteran Republican, he and a number of others in the early 1960s uh, saved Kilmainham Jail from being destroyed. I mean, the government were going to knock it down and build houses on it. And, I, and this was a Fianna Fáil government, by the way. But as a result of their agitation and as a result of their voluntary work and getting in at the weekends and doing plumbing and uh, repairing the jail, uh, I was I was in the jail before it became open as a museum. And so I was aware and in the cells of, of Pierce and Connolly, in the yard where they were executed. Uh, also in 1966, when I was 13, our school, Glen Road Christian Brothers School, uh, we performed a play, Ask Gilga. It was an Irish. I played the part of a Russian serf, and we won the All Ireland uh, Irish language play uh, for under fifteen year olds uh, at that time. And I, I remember on the way to Dublin, 
in the minibus. We were all singing Republican songs. Uh, and it was great. When we crossed the border, there was always a sense that you're out of the out of the Black North, away from the RUC, and there was a sense of a sense of, of freedom. Even though, of course, there was a whole history there of what the the Free State had done at the time of the Civil War, and the way, of course, they distanced themselves from the nationalist community in the North. But it was as I suppose 1969, with the when the pogroms came, uh, I was involved behind the barricades. Myself and a group of others, we had a cross-community group of people called the Belfast Pirates, and we had built transmitters that operated on the medium wave band. We built the transmitters from uh, cannibalized parts of other radios, uh, old valves, capacitors, and all this. I mean, very nerdy, anorak type of group. When we were on the air, we never spoke about politics or religion. But when the barricades went up, uh, an IRA figure from Dublin approached me and he said, I hear you have a transmitter. Would you be interested in, um, could could we use it? So my transmitter was brought to the long bar in Leeson Street, up the stairs. And uh, it became the first Radio Free Belfast transmitter. There's actually a photograph of me operating it in the Irish News. But even back then, I was security conscious. The camera was taken <laughs> from the back of my head. I've long, long hair, believe it or not. And... Uh, I, I've spoken about this before because I, it's just an astonishing thing that uh, up in up in this room, and by the way, the bar was owned by a, a man called Paddy Lemahan, whose bar in the Shankill Road had been burnt down. He, he owned several bars, and he was the father of Mary McAleese, who later became president of Ireland. So I knew Paddy Lemahan uh, from back then in 1969. And up the stairs uh, in the top lounge, it was also shared by a GEA club, if my memory serves me right, so you would have the, the transmitter in the middle of the room, the big table, and a record player, then 45s and LPs. And as a result of 1966, there was a, a real interest in uh, the IRA and in campaigns. And there was this sort of efflorescence of a subculture of rabble songs. Uh, Dominic Behan had written The Patriot Game around 1963 or 1964. Two LPs came out, The Rifles of the IRA, you know, with the Foggy Jew was on it, Johnson's Motor Car, James Connolly, the ballad of James Connolly. I think it was actually two versions of, of that. One was called uh, My Only Son Was Shot in Dublin. That's another one which mentions, mentions Connolly. But up the stairs in this room, we would have had the transmitter. And because it was going 24 hours, there would be hairdryers blowing cold air to keep the, trans the, the valves from exploding. And then the other side of the room, you'd have People's Democracy with a printing press, churning out one free citizen. Uh, in another corner room, you had the IRA, which hadn't yet split, but there was obviously, I mean, we were hearing rumblings about arguments that had been going on and arguments that had been actually going back several years because of the, after the failure of the 56 to 62 border campaign, uh, when the Republicans came out of jail, they were reflecting on how to go forward. There were different ideas. One of the ideas was to uh, join civil rights movement and, and form a civil rights movement. And in fact, the civil rights movement, the first meeting of NICRA was in Kavanagh News House in, in Maharaj South Derry. Kavanagh News was later a member of Sinn Féin and also my election agent whenever I was elected to the Assembly. So in this, in Radio Free Belfast, I remember one day there was a queue of kids right down the stairs and onto the street. I had to push my way past them to get into the station. 
And these kids had wee pieces of paper in their, their hands. And it was, it's my granny's 80th birthday. Would you play uh, a, a Brady Gallagher song for her? Or the sports, here's the sports results. P- BBC had ignored our community. Not just the Ulster Unionist government discriminating in housing and employment and where they located industry. And the fact that we, our community, despite being a, a, an artificial minority, made up the majority of those who immigrated from the north uh, to England, to Scotland, to America, to Australia. So we were playing records that had never been played before, never been heard before on the radio. We were given our GAA results. We were also, of course, alerting people to flashpoints. If a loyalist crowd was gathering in such and such an area, we could, alert, we could by through the transmitter, we could alert what was going on. And we said part of that story. One of my friends from the Shankill Road, Johnny Doak, who was in our pirate group, I, when the barricades went up, I never saw Johnny again. But about two weeks later, a station, Radio Shankill, came on the air, and I could tell that it was Johnny's transmitter that he had handed over to the loyalists. Uh, they were playing lo- uh, orange songs, etc., band music, and uh, trying to emulate, I suppose, or, and counter what, what we were doing. So that was the barricades, uh, Radio Free Belfast, was, was a, you know, a, a sense of something revolutionary about it, uh, a cordite about it. You could see the IRA behind the barricades with weapons as you were getting into Leeson Street earlier. Uh, but then the, bar- the Catholic Church persuaded us to take the barricades down uh, to try some sort of normality to return. The British Army had come in uh, around the 15th of August as a result of the Irish government going to the United Nations. And Patrick Hillary was the Irish ambassador and he had argued for the United Nations to come in uh, and internationalise the situation. And of course, the British government would not have that and they rushed in the British Army. We welcomed the British Army. I made them sandwiches, bought them cigarettes and I always remember an old Republican called Stoker Crossgrove from Ivy Street saying to me, you'll rue the day you ever made them sandwiches. And in later years, Stoker's son, Tommy, uh, was interned. I was interned with him twice. He was later arrested on an IRA operation and got sentenced to 14 years. His sister, married woman with three kids, went out to buy a packet of cigarettes, which ran out of fags. Uh, the morning that Joe McDonald died, the RUC shot her dead three, three doors from her own house. Uh, no one was ever arrested and charged, of course, that goes without saying. But Stoker was right. Uh, within 10 months, the British Army had turned their bayonets on us. Uh, if we came out on a protest, they fired gas, they used snatch squads, uh, baton charges fired gas into Ballamurphy. But the, turner, the turning point, in my opinion, in moving people towards looking at what the IRA was arguing and their analysis came with the curfew. When they surrounded 10,000 people in the lower falls and gassed them from helicopters, uh, opened fire, people came out of their, 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 their houses, they shot dead they, our youth club manager, the St Paul's Youth Club in Cavendish Square, Killed him, shot him dead at his front door. They also killed the first journalist, uh, a Polish photographer from London, who was over here photographing the curfew. They shot him dead. They drove over uh, an old man, killed him. Uh, shot dead another old man who was like 70 years of age, gasping for air, 
because of the gas came into his house, came to his front door. They shot him dead, and they shot and wounded about sixty others. And they were these guns had never been fired against the RUC, the British Army. They attacked the area that had come under pogroms nine months earlier, uh, and this just people were just saying, "What's it? We the IRA was defending us. That's why the IRA came into being." Now, of course. A few months earlier, we had learned that the IRA had split. Uh, the media had just declared that there was a, a changeover in leadership, and the new leadership had said that they were going to form a provisional army council to reorganize the IRA. And the media, in order to distinguish them from the other group of Republicans, called them, oh, they're provisionals. So that's where the term provisionals comes from. Whenever the, the IRA in the statement mentioned the provisional army council, the other group were the officials, who were subsequently nicknamed the Sticks. And it's, I wanna, it's important that uh, I, I say what I'm going to say next. The, the, the Sticks uh, got their name because they, the Easter lilies that they put on after 1969 were stuck on. And that, so they were called Sticky Backs, which became the Sticks. And the Republicans put on theirs with pins. And for a while, we were called Pinheads. Uh, <laughs> but back then... The analysis was, I mean, if you look at the New Statesman or The Economist or read some of the journalists who think they know everything, they, the, the, the mantra was that they, the officials are actually the dangerous ones. The officials are Marxists and uh, the provisionals are just right-wing Catholic nationalists. And that may have been the way it was perceived from outside. But the reason for that was because the priority was defending your area. The priority was surviving. Uh, but we, all the young people who I knocked around with, would have all been interested in Vietnam, would have all have heard of Yasser Arafat, would have known about South Africa. In fact, some of the Republicans whom I was in, in turn with had been merchant seamen and were telling us uh, in 71 and 72 what, what it was like to be a black in South Africa. They had they'd come off ship and seen what the townships were like. And uh, the way the, the, the blacks were horribly mistreated uh, and humiliated. So we had those politics, but the situation that we were in, the circumstance that we were in, the priority was to survive. And especially as the war slowly uh, broke out, and it, 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 it broke out, and I mean, it may have broken out by accident, but after, during the week, the weekend of the curfew, when they were wrecking homes and slowly invading the Falls Road, that was the first time the IRA went into the centre of town and placed incendiaries in shops and placed some small bombs against government buildings. And then over the months, every time the British Army would seal off a street and do a house to house, wreck the houses and beat people up, the IRA would put a bomb in the city centre. And that's how the, the bombing campaign began. And the IRA found out that the British Army and the British government, in order to protect property in the city centre, had to take soldiers out of nationalist areas and it made it easier on nationalist areas and it also facilitated the IRA to organise as a guerrilla organisation inside these these areas and when, a, when the soldiers shot people, the IRA would come out and fire shots at soldiers and slowly but surely a, a, an open armed struggle began. The Republicans were arguing that we're not going to get our civil rights. We're trying to get our civil rights. We're going to have to get our national rights to get our civil rights. And to get our national rights, we're going to have to challenge the ultimate power here. The, the, yes, the unionists have been in power for 50 years and treated us as second-class citizens. 
but behind them is the British government, it's British imperialism, and our struggle is no different from other struggles around the world that the British Empire was involved in. Only in the north of Ireland, they did not decolonize. They were still occupying. They were still defending that territory, and they were defending it with the military. And that was the language. I mean, we had tried to use the the argument, you know, or we tried to use the force of argument, and it failed. And so people reverted to the argument of force, and that's that was the origins of the armed struggle. Now later, uh, of course, as things developed, as we were able to articulate uh, more and more what the struggle was about. We were also able to bring in strands of other struggles about what was going on. And in fact, just this year, I have collaborated with a Palestinian uh, and we, we, we've added a book about the joint experiences of surviving Palestinian and Irish Republican hunger strikers. It's called A Shared Struggle, and that will be coming out uh, in August. And also, of course, uh, Jerry Adams you know, visited Cuba, spoke to Fidel Castro. When Nelson Mandela died, it was Jerry Adams. They asked him to become one of the pallbearers. What an honour. But what an, an acknowledgement that when everybody else was uh, deriding the ANC, that the Republican movement was fully in support of, of the ANC and their armed struggle. Yeah, you were touching on yourself, Danny, about obviously people deriding the ANC and yourselves would have been derided from free staters down here who, who've had it in for northern nationalists for a hundred years now. What was the first kind of time you came at the, I suppose not conflict or discussion with people down here, maybe in the 70s and the 80s and what they had to say to you on, as if they were in any case to judge what you were doing? Well, uh, because we had very little money, what happened was our summer holidays were spent in Dublin. So my uncle and aunt lived in, in Santry, in Shanless Drive, in aunt Santry, yeah, near me. in North Dublin. And uh, they for their summer holidays, they would go to my auntie Kathleen's relatives in Kerry. And we would come down and spend our two weeks in Santry, sunny Santry <laughs> by the sea. <laughs> that was where we spent. Martin so I, 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 I was well aware that there was always an overlap when my uncle and uh, uncle's family and my mommy and daddy and us would all be there together, either at the start of the holiday or towards the end of the holiday, whenever they returned. But my abiding memory is of my uncle Harry. When we were stopped, in, and this is like 1959, 1960, we, the guards would stop him because they always kept an interest in him. And he would lash into them. Uh, he was a fluent Irish speaker and he would give them dogs abuse uh, in Irish. And, you know, and it was strange because I didn't understand. Uh, I mean, I knew that we in the North were separated. But, I mean, at, at eight, nine, ten years of age, I hadn't got a full comprehension of how it had come about and what exactly had, had happened. And, uh, I mean, obviously, when I uh, began visiting the South in a Republican role, staying in people's houses, uh, or in a political role later, when I became a spokesperson and began to take part in debates, Trinity and UCD, UCG, etc., or doing public meetings, uh, it was quite obvious to me that the the damage that we suffered in the North, but the damage that partition had caused to the psyche of people in the 26 counties was remarkable, incredible. And of course, during the conflict, 
RTE uh, maintains Section 31 of the Broadcasting Act. So the people in the South only got the Unionists and the British side of the conflict in the North. Uh, I mean, when Owen Carn was elected, I mean, I was at I was at the Technical College in the Skill when the result was, was being declared, and RTE interviewed Owen won the seat that Bobby Sands had been the part of Bobby uh, Dang in the by election. Owen was elected. RTE interviewed the loser, who was Ken Ken McGinnis of of the UDR, former UDR man. And so the image that people in the South would always be getting would be the, you know, the Unionists were victims of Republicans and the, the, the evil people were the Republicans and the poor Brits were in the middle. Which, which Jerry Adams was shot. Couldn't interview Jerry Adams, but they were legally entitled to interview the UDA who shot them because it wasn't a prescribed organisation. And that did a lot, a lot of damage to people in 26 countries. But prior to that, of course, at the time of partition, uh, until, well, then the Civil War came about as a result of rejection by the majority of the IRA of the terms of the uh, treaty. The people, the people who uh, went to jail who were interned then, and that was a brutal civil war, but it lasted maybe 10 or 11 months, and then the IRA and De Valera decided to dump arms. In 1926, De Valera split from Sinn Féin and set up Féin of Oil. And even in, in the 1930-31 election, uh, Republicans were still supporting De Valera, believing that he was going to use the offices of Leinster House and uh, get into power and do something for the nationalists in the north. And he, he did nothing for the nationalist community. And in fact, over the years, it was quite clear that, uh, and Fine Gael, of course, came out of Cumann Gael and the blue shirts in the 1930s. It was quite obvious that they paid lip service to the Constitution. They paid lip service to the aspiration of Irish unity, and they became very, very cosy. They created an establishment, and the worst aspects of it, the most egregious aspects of it, in my opinion, have been over the last five years, uh, where they have started now to refer to the Republic of Ireland, the 26 counties, as Ireland. Country, yeah. Uh, uh, we've got, uh, you know, you'll hear Simon Coley talking about Ireland and Northern Ireland. As if I don't live in Ireland, as if the people of Cross McLean aren't Irish. Uh, and what they're doing, of course, is they want to create the impression that the nation stops at the border. So the Republic of Ireland is Ireland. And it's an attempt, the closer we get to achieving through peaceful means and through what was agreed in the, in the, in the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, the closer we get, for example, to a border referendum the further away they run from it. And so it's not just a political battle. When you look at the issues that are at stake, it is a class battle in many ways. It's a left versus right battle. Uh, the 26 county state and the main players in it, and Fine Gael and Fianna Foyle, are all cut from the same cloth. They all represent capitalism, wealth, privilege. Uh, they look down upon people. And what's needed, in my opinion, is something radical, something revolutionary. We need a party uh, that's going to get in there. And, you know, I have a very simple political philosophy. My philosophy is that wealth needs to be moved from the rich to the poor. It's as simple as that. 
it, it's, 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 from, it's the, poor, the labor of poor people and their ingenuity, their sweat, their toil. Uh, defined maybe differently now in a less industrial age, but it's still their efforts that built the wealth, builds the wealth of any country. And so what we need is an, as a proper health service in the 26 counties. We need a very ambitious uh, house building program. We, we need to challenge the uh, privilege that's there, you know, where if you go to a certain college, you can get vaccinated and your friends can get vaccinated yeah. before anyone else. I mean, the corruption is endemic. So it's not only because they aren't Irish Republicans or aren't United Islanders that Fine Gael and Fianna Foyle are increasingly becoming. I mean, the threat of a Sinn Féin government last night forced them, civil war enemies, into coalition for the first time in 100 years. Uh, and that, it was because we have to keep out Sinn Féin, uh, uh, you know, whatever. They have to be blocked because they are the threat. And what Sinn Féin is a threat. Yes, Sinn Féin is a threat to uh, what they have been doing and their policies. But Sinn Féin is also about, and it's one of the reasons why Sinn Féin uh, and it's stuck in our craw to go into Stormont. But it was necessary for a number of reasons in order to uh, get into power, in order to create policies and harmonise policies on both sides of the border, on, on agriculture, on tourism, on waterways, on health service, on edu education, as much as we can to harmonise them, and also uh, to build relations with the unionists. Now, that hasn't always been easy. You can see that the way that the, the DUP remain quite Neanderthal. Uh, they've got two people currently running for the leadership after they ousted the, only, the first and only woman leader they ever had, Arling Foster, uh, and both of them you know, are fairly fundamentalist uh, and conservative and reactionary in their views. But still, we, through the armed struggle, we achieved a position where the British Army admitted that they could not defeat, militarily defeat the IRA. The IRA was also in a very strong position in the 1990s, probably better armed than it was ever armed as a result of shipments that had gone through to it from Libya prior to the capture of the Exxon and presumably other weapons had got through at other times uh, through other means. But the IRA, uh, once it was realised that there was a military stalemate and that the IRA could fight on forever, but it could fight on forever without necessarily improving the negotiating muscle of the Republican movement. And there was, I was in jail at the time of the ceasefire, and there was a, an onus on Republicans who began to look more creatively about what way we could achieve the same objectives. And so slowly the, the, the peace process uh, was born. Now, I would have preferred a much more ambiguous Good Friday Agreement, but the problem is that at that stage, Sinn Féin was in a minority position with regards to the SDLP, and the SDLP and the Irish government were always going to circumscribe uh, and delimit what you could achieve uh, in terms of your negotiations. Uh, now, that has changed. Sinn Féin has overtaken the SDLP. And up until then, by the way, up until 2001, the Irish government usually deferred to the SDLP when it was uh, adopting a position on the north. But since then, of course, now that the people have chosen Sinn Féin as their elected representatives, they're totally hostile. Uh, to Sinn Féin, uh, and they're, they're, they're making the same mistakes, of course. They're demonising Sinn Féin, but when they're demonising Sinn Féin, 
you're demonizing the nationalists, the nationalist community who elect Sinn Féin. This, uh, this year, obviously, is the 40th anniversary of the hunger strikes well, in 1981, and obviously we had the hunger strikes as well in 1980, and the culmination of that was obviously, as most would know, um, the withdrawal of special character status, and then you had the, the prison protests that culminated in like, the dirty protests and things like that. Um, you obviously worked as a spokesperson as well um, for Bobby Sands. Could you just tell our listeners a wee bit of the background um, leading up to the hunger strike and the need for it at the time for the five demand? Well, first of all, well, uh, you need to understand a simple background to it, that in 1972 there was a hunger strike in Crumlin Road Jail by RA mm-hmm. prisoners. Before anyone died, the British government agreed to special category status. Yeah. And the, the prisoners would have the same, those sentenced prisoners would have the same conditions that we enjoyed as internees. We were in jail without charge or trial or a date of release. We were allowed to wear our own clothes, to look after our own cage, etc., look after our own life, and we had our own command structure. And that led to relative peace in the jail. No prison officer lost his life. They still raided our cages, still, I mean, uh, prisoners died of medical neglect. British Army would raid every three or four weeks. Alsatian dogs put you up against the fence, steal your photographs of your girlfriends and wreck the place. Uh, and a prisoner, Jared Coney, was shot dead, trying to escape from internment. But there was relative, relative peace and there was security in our large, large numbers. But internationally, the, the world saw the way we were as being equivalent to political prisoners or prisoners of war. Mm-hmm. And the British government, of course, didn't like this projection or perception. And they set out to do what they had tried time and time before. Uh, been Thomas Ice in 1917 was demanding POW status. He was, he was convicted. Uh, he had also been arrested in the 1916 rising. Then he'd been amnestied. And then he was rearrested, uh, allegedly for making an inflammatory speech. And he went on hunger strike and he died of forced feeding. So the British government knew and their advisors knew. And they've got historians and civil servants who can throw up 20 scenarios in the air. They can tell the British government what's likely to happen. British government knew that there would be resistance. But they thought that by depriving prisoners of political status, by breaking them, by beating them, they would get them to conform, put on the uniform. It would be totally humiliating, totally demoralizing, and it would help defeat. They couldn't defeat the IRA on the outside of the jail, so they decided to pick on the most vulnerable, men isolated in cells. Uh, they could send four and five heavies in at a time, strip them of their clothes, beat them up, hose them down, forcibly shear them, forcibly bathe them, and they met with incredible resistance. It's a, an epic struggle, a struggle of the H-blocks and what the women in Armagh prison came through. And they didn't succeed. Uh, they had ended special category status for anyone arrested after the 1st of March 1976. The first person to, to uh, experience criminalisation was Keir Nugent from the Falls Road. And he refused. He was thrown into a cell. The only thing that was there was a blanket. He, to cover his nakedness, he, he put on the blanket and thus the blanket protest began. Now, Bobby Sands had been sentenced to five years and had political status. 
he was released, but he was only at 11 months when he was caught on another IRA operation. And whenever he arrived at the H-Blocks, he was stripped and beaten, and he became a blanket man. I knew Bobby from, uh, I'd met him when he was first released, and he and I had uh, been writing to each other, and I had published his poems and short stories as, as the editor of Republican News and later as the editor of Unfoblock Republican News. And throughout 1980, I had also uh, visited him because we in the outside were quite concerned that the struggle, had, the, the prison struggle had been going on for so long. Conditions were horrific. I mean, initially they were allowed to go to the toilet and then the prison officer says, no, you have to put on the uniform, go to the toilet. And people who went to the toilet were beaten on their way to the toilet. So the prisoners ended up going to the toilet in their own cells. And when they tried to pour their waste underneath the door, the prison officers pushed it back in again. So the prisoners were forced to put their faces on the wall and thus begun the no-wash, no-slop-out protest, which was pretty horrific and lasted for several years. But unless it was resolved, it was going to be a hunger strike. And we had tried to stop the hunger strike. We had intensified our lobbying. Myself and Jerry Adams had met with Cardinal O'Fee. We were hoping that he would act as an, an intermediary. He had been visiting the British government. He spoke to Mrs. Thatcher. He spoke to Humphrey Atkins, Secretary of State. And he was hopeful that the prisoners would get their own clothes. But then the British government pulled a stroke on him. And, and uh, he sent us word, they're getting their own clothes. And then they said, in a statement, no, no, not their own clothes. Prison issue, civilian-type clothes. And it was another uniform, as far as the prisoners were concerned. And that's what triggered the first hunger strike. Bobby had t- become commanding officer of the IRA prisoners. He had wanted to go on the first hunger strike, but uh, Brenton Hughes uh, led that hunger strike. It lasted for 53 days. And about in the last 10 days of it, the British government contacted them, the leadership of the movement through a secret channel, and it appeared to us that they were interested in ending it uh, and in putting forward some form of compromise. They were to send a paper to the prisoners. But before that paper arrived, uh, Sean, uh, Sean McKenna, who was uh, on the hunger strike, his condition had rapidly deteriorated. Brenton Hughes was aware that a document was on its way in uh, from the British government through us to them. And on the basis of that, he ended the hunger strike. Unfortunately, the, what the British government interpreted that was a sign of weakness and they basically ignored the promises that they were uh, making about a, a progressive, enlightened prison regime where prisoners could do education in place of work. And they made it difficult for Bobby Sands to pick up the pieces at the end of the first hunger strike. Bobby tried to work the document. He was met with uh, obstinacy at every turn. And that's what triggered the second hunger strike. So I, uh, I was then banned from the jail. I wasn't allowed to visit Bobby, and, and my the bomb was only lifted once uh, after the, the deaths of four men. I was in the jail in July 1981, again on a mission to try and uh, reach a, re- a resolution and a compromise. But Bobby led that hunger strike, and he was followed at intervals by other prisoners. And I, totally unexpected, uh, Frank McGuire, the independent MP for Fermanagh South Drone died of a heart attack and he had been a friend of the prisoners, had supported their cause. 
But uh, I think it was the Ulster Unionist Party moved the writ in Westminster for a by-election, thinking that they could sneak in and take the seat. We debated whether putting Bobby forward was possible. Uh, it was quite a gamble because if Bobby lost, Thatcher would then use that victory to say that you've no support. So I'm right in refusing you concessions. Uh, you know, the mantra of the British government up until then had been, you know, how can we talk to you? You've no mandate. And Bobby got elected. And her immediate response was to rush emergency legislation through the House of Commons to amend the Representation of the People Act so that no prisoner could stand in an election. And, she, and she, by the way, no prisoner anywhere in the world. She added that in case we put forward a prisoner from the south of Ireland in a subsequent by-election or a prisoner, one of our prisoners in America or Germany or England. So that was her response. And of course, Bobby, uh, the 5th of May, the anniversary is tomorrow. Bobby will be 40 years dead. It was an incredible period. Hunger strike lasted for seven months. I mean, when you look back at the 1916 rising, the leaders were executed over a period of uh, two weeks or 18 days. And in our case here, there was a procession of young men's bodies coming out of the prison hospital. Uh, hunger strike began on the 1st of March, ended on the 3rd of October, and it just changed everything. It radically, it radicalized the young people. It uh, opened up an opportunity that we hadn't uh, considered, or at least we had never saw a way where we could enter into a, enter an electoral strategy uh, without causing major splits in the movement, because historically, uh, the, whenever the movement developed political strategies, it led to different splits down the years. Uh, but the election of Bobby, and then the election of Kieran Doherty, who was elected to the Irish Parliament, along with another blanket man, Paddy Agnew, uh, in June 1981, showed us that there was uh, that the Brits did not like Republicans winning seats. The media and the and the, and the, the outside of the British tabloid media, the world's media, and uh, many organisations around the world began to view this struggle as David versus Goliath. Bobby Sands takes on the might of the Thatcher government, the Iron Lady, and as we uh, decided. And it was at the Ardesh in 1981 when we debated the motion about whether or not to take part in elections. It was, uh, to me, it was a, a crucial time. It was uh, an opportunity. And we almost didn't win that vote at the Sinn Féin Ardesh. Just so, Danny, you were talking about, obviously, the, the effect 81 had on the people of the six counties. What, what was it like, obviously myself and Martin weren't alive then, but what was it like on the ground when all that was happening? Where Did it unlock maybe a sense of belief or confidence in nationalists in the six counties that they could, maybe the wrong way to put it, but they could achieve stuff, they could do things? Well, you must understand, we weren't, we weren't, we weren't allowed in the city centre, we weren't allowed to march in the city centre. Uh, relatives Action Committees were set up in support of their sons and daughters. And women, especially, would, would take over Marks and Spencer's downtown. They would go into the front of the shops displaying uh, the blanket posters about what conditions were like. Young kids, I mean, I remember, you wouldn't understand this, but Belfast City Centre was about three miles, a security zone. So all of the city centre was surrounded by iron gates with sentry posts 
and uh, UDR and British Army searching people getting into the shops because of course the IRA was, was bombing the city centre of course uh, kids were wearing Bobby Sands badges and they've been walking up to the checkpoint the soldier would say take that off and take it off take that off and there'd be fights the kids would fight Brits and there was a real militancy uh, coming out in the community and it just the, the level of confidence shot up now it had an effect of course on the military side of things uh, there was thousands of young people I mean first of all a large number of people joined Sinn Féin a lot of young people wanted to join the IRA but the IRA was actually unlike the NLA the IRA was quite careful the IRA, instead of just opening the doors and letting everybody in, uh, had a whole series of tests and waiting and training and education. And uh, it was careful about who it let in. Whereas I think the NLA made a mistake of thinking that uh, numbers were everything and they let many, many people in. And it meant that the following year, when the British government then began to use the supergrass system, where they would arrest one member of an organization, turn that person, and uh, they would give that person immunity from prosecution if that person turned against former comrades. So we had we had super grass trials, mass tra- show trials, you know, maybe thirty people in the dock, and the INLA were devastated, quite devastated by this. Whereas there were Republicans in the dock, and there were Republicans arrested, but most of the cases collapsed, and there wasn't as many cases against Republicans. So out of that period of repression that followed the hunger strike, it was the IRA that survived uh, more than any other of the of the organisations that were involved in the resistance. Now, at the Ardesh in 1981, uh, I was on the Ard Coil, the National Executive. We put forward a motion because when the hunger strike ended, there had been a new Secretary of State, James Pryor, had taken over from Humphrey Atkins. Humphrey Atkins had been there at the time of the death of the 10 men. But prior, uh, granted people their own clothes, prisoners had their own clothes within, I think, a week of the ending of the hunger strike. But he also mentioned that he, it was his intention to hold assembly elections. Now, under Sinn Féin's uh, constitution, we could not contest assembly elections in the North. We didn't even contest council elections in the North. And in fact, uh, in the month after Bobby was elected from Man and South Tyrone, at the local government elections in the north, which we couldn't contest, even though we probably should have, People's Democracy got elected, Irish Republican Socialist Party people got elected, uh, Irish Independence Party people got elected, and that was that, that vote there was obviously a radical vote and a radicalised vote and a Republican vote. So we wanted to be in a situation where if Pryor did call the Assembly election, that we would be free, the Art Collier would be free to weigh up the pros and cons and make a determination without calling back the entire Ardesh uh, about whether or not there should be ways for us to contest assembly elections on an abstentionist ticket, of course. So that was the motion that the Ardesh empower the incoming Art Collier to make a decision if, a, if an assembly election was called, whether to participate. So we thought it was just you know, easily done because after Bobby's death, we put forward Owen Caron, and uh, Owen had won the seat, the Fermanagh South Tyrone seat, in August 1981. So it was quite obvious that there was support there for Republicans standing for election. People got, got up and started to uh, oppose it. 
and it was it, for, uh, at one point it looked like we were going to lose it. And remember, Adams said to me on the platform, "Hey, everybody, get up there and support the motion." So as I took the podium without plan, because I hadn't intended speaking, I got this image in my head of how to sell it. And what I was saying to the people is that there would be the armed struggle would continue, but we would have an extra struggle here, an electoral struggle. And the two together, I mean, this is what I didn't articulate that. I simply said, with an arm right in one hand, the ballot paper in the other, we'll take power in Ireland. <laughs> and uh, we won the vote. And the following, the, the following October, assembly elections were called and we took part in them. And I was elected mid Ulster, Martin and Derry, Jerry in West Belfast, Jim McAllister in South Armagh, and Owen Carnan from Manasau, Tyrone. And that was the beginning of the electoral strategy, which was developed over the years. It had its ups and downs. It wasn't, I mean, it, it, you know, it looked good if, if people were looking at it. So we put forward Bobby Sands and he got elected. And then, uh, yeah, Ian Doherty got elected. And then Owen Carn got elected. And then Morrison and McGuinness and Adams got elected. And then the following May, Jerry became MP for West Belfast. You know, it, yes, it looked as if it was a continual role. But whilst we did very well in the, we put forward prisoner candidates in the general election in the 26 counties in June 81. But by February 83, when there was the next general election, that support had disappeared. Oh, yeah. And our people were telling us in the South, and we did stand for election in the South, for council elections in the South, by the way. We didn't stand for Linster House elections. Our people in the South were telling us that, look, the people in the 26 counties don't look upon the institutions in Dublin the same way as nationalists look upon Stormont. You know, people down here consider the institutions of the state legitimate. And this was a huge problem for us because, of course, we had an abstentionist policy towards the 26 counties. And it had also played a part in the split in 1969-70. Because although I've, I've mentioned to you that uh, at the time, the perception was that the provosts were right-wing and the stickies were Marxist and left-wing. That wasn't the, the case. The sticks were reformist. Uh, and look where they had ended up and all the incarnations, all the divisions they had, where they all ended up. Still splitting. Uh, <coughs> still splitting, even last weekend, <laughs> between Dublin, Cork and Belfast, and the three of them. So we, we had to take us on board, and it was quite obvious that uh, we needed to end policy of abstentionism towards Leinster House. And that was a very emotional issue for many veteran Republicans, uh, the likes of Rory O'Grady and Dahi O'Connell. It was very difficult for them, but as far as we were concerned, we had a revolutionary attitude towards it. Uh, and it was this. Like, this is a road we have to take to build up a movement, to build up, to get into power, to start pushing all of our agendas, not just our nationalist agenda, but our social and political economic agenda, then we have to bite the bullet and we have to do this. Uh, and that resulted in the split in November 86 when Rory and Dave walked out and formed Republican Sinn Féin. Now, even though we changed that policy, it was quite a few years before Keeving O'Quail won. Uh, interestingly, the election agent for Kieran Doherty, when Kieran was elected, and Kieran subsequently died in hunger strike in August 81. 
Kevin O'Quilling was first elected to, to Leinster House. And uh, now, of course, in last year's general election, uh, Sinn Féin uh, was the largest party, although the combined vote of Féin, the Fáil Fine Gael, of course, allowed them to win the coalition with the Greens. Going on to um, more sort of broader scope, in relation to a United Ireland, one, are you going to see it in your lifetime? And two, if indeed a United Ireland does come about, uh, what would it look like, do you think, for the people on the ground? Because there's obviously, there's, you've, you've touched on it already, there is massive differences in the psyche and the thinking maybe between the 26 counties and the six counties. Um, how do you bridge that gap and how do you create a sort of, a, fundamentally, a, a greater level of um, existence and lifestyle for the working class people on the ground going forward? Is it going to be a more a socialist republic, uh, the proclamation, or well, would it be more I mean, a... I, I, ideally... You know, and I, I and I've written about this years and years ago. Ideally, what you'd want is a thirty-two county democratic socialist republic, mm-hmm. but you can't do that unless you have got the support to bring it about. So mm-hmm. you have to uh, cut your cloth or tailor your cloth, you know, to, 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 to the circumstances. I do not. I would not want the the north bolted on to twenty-six counties. That is not the type of Ireland that I, that that I want. The first point I want to make is this. Well, the British presence is still in Ireland. We've still got the connection. We've still got the union. Uh, yeah. We got all the prisoners out of jail. The Brits were withdrawn. I mean, if you're crossing the border, you, where the old checkpoints were, Newry and Cross McGlenn, Fort Hill, right around Camel's Humpus, the Bond, Derek, all gone. Well, so there's no physical manifestation of the border between the north and the South. And in that respect, uh, and with the demographic changes that have taken place, and with the decision to enter the Assembly in the North, I think that that has had a number of effects. First of all, it's emboldened the nationalist community. I mean, I no longer feel vanquished. That sense of being second class as kids that we had uh, is no longer there. Every Any position in the state is open to our people. We can no longer be discriminated against. Now, of course, there's still resistance to things like the Irish Language Act and the, the Bill of Rights, which was promised centuries ago, is still not there. But we've managed to use the legal system quite well to make challenges. Uh, and families have been able to use Article 2 of, of European law to call Britain to account for the, the, its killings here. And, we, and also, we've opened the lid on collusion and the extent of the dirty war against the nationalists and the Republican community. So currently, uh, and this is in relation to will I see United Ireland, I think I will see United Ireland. And But the, my point I'm making is that we are no longer oppressed. Uh, the, at the bottom of my street used to be Anderson's Town Barracks. I was handed, it, it was knocked down, and that land has been handed back to the community. Now, we haven't decided what we're going to do with it yet. But and and you know barracks and Oma barracks and Abington all been knocked down, handed back to the community. So there's lots of opportunities here. I'm also involved in you know building peace, meeting with former loyalists, former British soldiers, for, former RUC men, uh, analysing what happened. Uh, now they, they they can't expect me to resile from my Republican past or my Republican history. I think they have difficulties coming to. Terms with that, and that's understandable given 
they, I mean, given the ferocity of, of the, the IRA campaign. But so in the North, there is, and it's quite clearly on the news, where is the instability coming from? It's from the unionist parties not having tuned their people into change and into transition. And so you get shibboleths like well, the, the Catholics have got everything, we're now second class citizens, mm-hmm. you know, the border down the REC, which the DUP, it's the DUP's border, they're the parents of the border down the REC, you know, the protocol, we're going to go to the protocol of England, will be back to normal and won't be back to normal because there is no normality for the six county state. It's always going to be, in my opinion, an insecure place until we have a new Ireland. Now, what will the new Ireland look like? Well, more importantly, it's how we get the wealth from the rich to the poor mm-hmm. that, that counts. And uh, on social social issues, you you have seen how in the in the twenty six counties the the, the 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 Catholic part of the Catholic Church has just been washed away. You know, yeah. you've got uh, gay marriage, gay rights, uh, women's health issues have been resolved. Still resistance to that in the north. From sections of the right wing Catholics and the DUP, they found a common cause in that. So, I mean, there's there's a wealth of ongoing uh, battles to be fought. But eventually, what I would like to see is that we were in a position where, and this is where the Good Friday Agreement that the Unionists and the Free Staters want to change. You know, they're now saying that. A majority isn't good enough to bring about a new Ireland or United Ireland. You know, 50, 50, 50% plus one is enough to keep me under British rule. But if I get 50% plus one, I can't change it. And it's this, it's very dangerous shifting the goalposts like this. Uh, because we all bought into this in 1998. Uh, it was explained, it was set out, and now that maybe they thought it was never going to happen. But now that it's you know on the cusp of being realised, uh, I would prefer a situation where the unionists became acclimatised to the fact that the nationalist community or the nationalist community and others had a majority and could trigger could trigger a constitutional change at any time, and maybe that would affect their overall behaviour in terms of community engagement, in terms of sharing power. In the big, one of the biggest disappointments, and perhaps. Uh, it is understandable that loyalist paramilitaries who claim to have originally acted uh, out of good faith in, in, in fighting and lifting up arms, whenever they come out of jail, there was a degree of corruption and criminality. They never transformed themselves into a political organisation. They complained that the DUP sell out, and yet at every election, they they'll withdraw from seats like Billy Hutchinson in North Belfast, trying to ensure that Nigel Dodds gets a seat, not John Finucane. You know, they do. They complain, but they've never built anything. So there's a, a love of proletariat there and a working class loyalist side that has no leadership, is attracted to... What's it attracted to? Israeli flags, Confederate flags, the National Front, uh, uh, and the, uh, uh, the uh, young uh, male educational underachievement is at record levels amongst that community. 
Whereas, you know, there's a big emphasis in our community on education, education, education. Get educated. Well, it was the same, it was the same in the prison when you look at the University of Long Kesh. The amount of guys that came out as political prisoners and educated themselves was just astonishing. The loyalists were doing press-ups and hitting punch bags and the Republicans theoretically were uh, sticking in about books and it's, I, think, well, I, don't know, actually, I think it just maybe comes down to a different mindset. The, uh, the, the, the Guardian actually, uh, I don't know what year was it, 1986 or 87, the Guardian got their hands on a survey that the prison administration had done and it mm. showed that uh, 80% of the literature going into loyalist wings was on uh, the Nazis uh, bodybuilding <laughs> and pornography, right? And 80% of the books going into the Republican wings were sociology, history, and literature. I mean, that's, mm. that's not me saying that. That's, uh, that. That was a figure that the Guardian got its hands hands on. But the loyalists, I mean, there were some loyalists who did education, but never enough, and they never bought they never bought into it, and now they're paying the price for it, because they, they're not... Uh, I mean, David Irvine was quite progressive, and you know, would have led them... To, I think he would have led them down a, a different path uh, than they have gone down with their with their leadership. But sure, they got rid of Gary McMichael, they got rid of... Uh, Lad uh, Davy Adams, who were quite articulate, all of the women spokespersons, uh, three women spokespersons, they've all left, packed in the bags. One's gone to England. One's gone to uh, work in the Murray Stokes Clinic. Uh, so they, I mean, they, they don't facilitate their own membership or their own cause. They've shown no leadership. Yeah, obviously the unionist uh, population it might be the same in Scott with yourself, Matt. Do you think there's a sense that they feel they're in the end game now, and that's where that the fear is happening? Definitely. Well, there's no, there's no doubt about it, and it's also quite dangerous because it means they can be wound up. I mean, my concern about these rats, which they weren't, I mean, a, a rat, there could be seven rats in West Belfast during the conflict. Each one of a different standard, different quality. You know, the rat and the burnt a few buses and a few lorries out there, right? Uh, I mean, it was nothing on the scale or magnitude of a real rat during during the conflict. But having said that, my main concern was that these things usually deteriorate, and at the end of it's a dead Catholic. That's yeah. you know that's their that's normally how these they finish. But when they were protesting to get down uh, Garvahi Road, and and they, and they weren't getting down, they ended up. Uh, shooting the taxi driver Michael Gallagher, born in three children to death in Balamoni, uh, all the force the hand uh, and force the ISIS to let them march, to let them march through a Catholic area, and they, they didn't win on that occasion. So there is a great danger that uh, the gun will be put in the hand of, of some young fella uh, who will be, you know, think he's doing it for the best of reasons, uh, or and will be acting out of sectarian hatred and plug the first Catholic that comes along or beat to death the first Catholic. Uh, that's the that's the great danger of of them being wound up. You know, the business people here, the protocol actually is working about eighty five percent, and between London and Europe and Brussels, they can actually fine tune the other difficulty in the paperwork, the IT systems, and they can actually, in my opinion, have that smoothed out within a year. So they're acting they're actually going to be deprived of complaining uh, about the protocol. But psychologically, it does distance the North from the rest of, of Britain. There's no doubt about that. Because for all intents and purposes, they're in the single market. 
they're in the customs union and uh, goods coming from Britain into the north have to be treated and checked as if they're going into France or the Republic of Ireland. Uh, definitely. The, Pierce, I think you just hit the nail on the head there as well, mate. The, their ideology is coming to an end. I think they've kind of worked out that um, both if independence in Scotland happens or indeed the breakup of the British state, I think they've kind of fathomed that um, their ideology is under threat. And when they're under threat, their back gets up and they've not got really any articulate relevance, so they turn to violence, unfortunately. Um, we always usually just finish with a wee tip, but Danny, I'd just like to say thanks so much for your time. It's an absolute pleasure well listening to you. You're literally a yes. wealth of knowledge. Um, Say never meet your heroes, a, but this has been right up there. What, um, what, a life, what a life you have lived. Um, a revolutionary, an activist, a politician, and also a phenomenal author. Um, we always just ask a few wee questions, um, because it's a Celtic podcast, usually it's football related. I know you're no big on to football. Um, one thing I was going to ask you was, <laughs> <laughs> One thing I was going to ask you was, um, in terms of your political hero anywhere around the world, who would you look to most for sort of reverence and uh, inspiration? Well, probably Nelson Mandela. No, although I was in I was in Cuba two or three years ago, and it was in a very privileged position that uh, a, a survivor of one of the big attacks at at, at, at uh, Santa Clara, I think it was. The centre of Cuba, mm-hmm. an old man who had been with Che Guevara, uh, t- showed me the whole layout of the land and how they carried out that attack on the train that Batista had sent down there as the, the last major act. If Batista had won this operation, then he, he felt that he was safe, but they had failed. And this old boy was explaining to me how they blew up the, the, the train, uh, derailed the train, and within days they were marching on Havana. But before that, uh, I'd Fidel Castro's grave, I was I was treated like a, a dignitary, like a diplomat, and I was actually brought into the adjacent barracks and, and allowed to sign uh, the book there, uh, book of guests for that. So, I mean, Fidel Castro and what he achieved, what he came through, and how he actually resisted what the United States has done on a small, proud, independent nation is remarkable. But I mean, I still the dignity of Nelson Mandela. I was in jail when Nelson Mandela uh, was released, and we happened to be just in the canteen. Pachihan was there as well, uh, Pachihan and I. And uh, you know, when we saw him come walking out of that prison, really interesting. The government wanted him to go out the back door, mm. and he says, "No, I'm going out. I'm going out the way I came in." Uh, you know, it was just so. It was just an incredibly emotional moment. So certainly. Nelson Mandela. And then, sorry, just the last question, Danny. What would be your favourite book you've written? Uh, well, when you finish a book, you think it's the best one. But yeah. <laughs> book that I'm very fond. I wrote a, I wrote a book about a, a gay person whenever I was in jail. Uh, in the back of the swallow. And it really never sold. And the, me, the media really went to town on me uh, when I wrote that. But I also wrote another little novel called Rudy, and it's set. It starts off in the Second World War and it ends in the eighteen nineties. And the main character is actually a Protestant from the village area in Belfast, but he's an everyman. And it was loosely based on a novel by Herman Hesse uh, called Knoop. And the story is the story is very simple. It's about a young promising scholar, and Knoop was actually written in nineteen fifteen. 
and I've transferred the plot to the north. It's about a young promising scholar who falls in love with a slightly older woman who breaks his heart, he can't cope, and he becomes a tramp. And he observes the world as being this lonely person. And so my, my novel, uh, Rudy, is, is based on that. It's the same plot, but of course, Rudy, coming from a unionist background and travelling around Ireland, you know, and as many friends in many different places, he's also an observer of human nature and human behaviour. So I really, I really uh, like that book. But I mean, in terms of a book that's very, I mean, I, th- I think it's that a book that's well written uh, uh, is The Wrong Man, one that uh, Martin, I think you said you saw when I adopted it for the stage, it was shown in the uh, Edinburgh Festival. I mean, yeah, it's I mean, quite a taught, quite a taught book, and uh, it was reissued about two or three years ago. And I combined, I combined scenes from the play which weren't in the original book. Because when I had the book and when I was adopted for stage, you can't have uh, car chases on stage, you know. So you have to everything has to be <laughs> broken down, broken down into dialogue and conversations. So I had to invent some new scenes for the play. And when it came to reissuing the book, I brought those scenes. And so the new version of The Wrong Man, uh, to me, is, is, is quite a good book and, and it still sells. Fantastic. The, um, that, uh, um, unbelievable. And again, thanks so much for your time. And um, hopefully, ho- hopefully one day, um, the, all, all, the, all the sacrifice, all the work will, have, um, will come to fruition. And to quote your, uh, your, your friend, um, hopefully our... Uh, our revenge will be the laughter of our children, but the, um, anyway, thank you so much again for your time and um, okay, um, best, best of health. Good luck, my man. Okay, good man. Thank you, Pierce. Thanks Take care, Danny. Hey,